So today is March 22nd, 2021. Um, I am recording this as the last lecture in my series on Bulgakov, which is itself the last lecture in my class on general humanities. And I feel a certain amount of freedom with this lecture, uh, in part because I don't actually expect many of my students to make it this far. Um, I usually don't require uh, the, my students to finish the Master and Margarita. Uh, I encourage them to do it. Um, I often like include finishing the book as, as an extra credit assignment, but my general humanities class tends to, to fluctuate um, in the way that it's run and the time that it takes to run it and what I include. Um, so the Master and Margarita I very much include at the end of the class as this sort of cushion um, so it takes as much time to read as I need it to. Um, like if I only have three weeks to teach it, then it takes three weeks. If I only have three classes to teach it, then I'll do it in three classes. Um, I want to include as much as I can, and I want to follow it through to its end for sure, now that I have the actual opportunity to. But it's never been a huge priority. Um, and for that reason, again, I don't feel a whole heck of a lot of obligation to to conclude. Um, like, we are going to talk about it, that it's my plan anyway, but this is an opportunity for me to be honest, um, to reflect, and just to think about things. Um, like, in addition to this being March 22nd, 2021, this is also a year and two weeks from when I first had my sit-down conversation with all of my students at Sussex County Community College and explained that all hell was breaking loose. Um, that the coronavirus was going to radically change the way that our class was going to work going forward. Like, I can remember pretty keenly, um, it was the week before spring break, but at the same time Montclair had already decided to go on spring break, um, and my students were panicking for good reason. Like at that point, the fact that the coronavirus was coming was in all the news stories. I'm pretty sure that that cruise ship had already gotten hit. Um, like there was talk of closing borders. Many other countries had already closed borders. Uh, the U.S. was getting, was kind of on the verge of declaring a national emergency. Um, and at the same time, there was a lot of political uncertainty. Like at that point, Trump was still denying uh, the virus, if I remember correctly, um, or if he was sort of admitting it, it was it was a lot of pushback at this point, and it was only going to get worse in the months to come. Um, and the past couple of weeks, I've seen a lot of people sort of reminiscing, um, trying to sort of track what this year has meant to them. Um, like, how do you deal with the fact that our entire culture, our entire world, just sort of blipped out an entire year um that you know like we all just sort of put our lives on hold put our work on pause um and yet you know that that's that's sort of the the luxury of the survivors that we can say you know our lives stopped halted where there are many who didn't survive um like I, at this point I, I don't think i know anyone who didn't personally know someone who died to the coronavirus or during this time. Um, lives irrevocably changed as a consequence of this. Um, so this is my opportunity to reflect because 
as much as you know everybody was kind of doing this a couple weeks ago and i'm a little late to the party um this is it for at least my original intention for this podcast um for professor kozlowski lectures um at this point i have recorded lectures for like three and a half classes by which i mean i recorded all the lectures for my intro to philosophy class um, and then a bunch more when I changed the curriculum between last semester and this semester, as I usually do. All the lectures for my mythology class, and with this, the last lecture for my general humanities class. Um, and things are looking up here in March of 2021. Um, I have been vaccinated, my wife has been vaccinated. Um, I think the official numbers hang out at somewhere like 20% of the nation has been vaccinated at this point. It seems like we're turning the corner. We're not out of the woods yet, for sure. Um, if anything, it seems worrisome at this particular moment that we uh, might be jumping the gun on this. Like, a whole bunch of rashes of new exposures have come down the pike. Um, there's a few new variants that people are scared of. Um, a lot of people, you know, assuming that now that people are getting vaccinated, it's okay to congregate, have gotten more infections. Um, just in the past, like, three weeks, I've had two closer calls than I've ever had before um, to getting the coronavirus. Like, for the first time, one of my students was diagnosed with the coronavirus. Um, like, it became this whole big thing, the whole inquiry and stuff. And my church was, like, rather seriously hit um some of that was false alarm thank god but still nerve-wracking to say the least um but this is kind of it like the end um i, I don't intend to stop recording podcasts like i i know my longtime listeners and a lot of my online folks know that one of these days i'm going to get around to recording a series of lectures on on heidegger um due to one of my students uh like online students not actual students um writing a question and, and asking you know what's the deal with heidegger uh, i still intend to do that i also had another student write in a little fairly recently um and she asked about how, how to square the wrathful and potentially vengeful god of the old testament with the the loving merciful god of the new testament which i'm really looking forward to talking about i'm hoping to record that either this week or next week um, but I'm not in a huge hurry on either of these. Like, I, I want to get them done, and, you know, the possibility also is, is out there that I might record another series of lectures down the pike. Like, if I ever get the chance to teach ethics again, I, I hope to do that. Um, this has been a, a really neat platform to work from. Um, but it's coming to an end, I think. Or at least it's coming to a big change. Um, like, I, I don't anticipate having to go whole weeks of recording four lectures a week the way that I have for the last several. Um, so, you know, whether or not this marks the end of Professor Kozlowski lectures, uh, like, as a thing, it certainly marks a change for me and my relationship to it as a person. Um, so, again, I'm recording this not so much for my students, but for those of you who have followed along, who have gone above and beyond you know maybe you've only listened to the general humanities lectures or maybe you're catching this as like one of just several lectures that you've listened to or maybe you've listened to all 70 however many there are now um in either case thank you <laughs> like it's 
been really interesting doing this and a lot of fun when it wasn't like exhausting and super stressful um and i'm glad that people have found meaning in it like I'm glad that this has been a source of comfort or intellectual stimulation. Um, I, I know like several of my students have remarked how much they've appreciated the lectures one way or the other. Um, apparently like one of my students shared it with all of his friends and said that my professor is real AF. Um, like that's the sort of thing that I'm really most flattered by, honestly, like people coming out of the blue and just, you know, telling me about this stuff when they have no agenda or, you know, other reason in mind. Um, so if you have been listening, if you are, you know, paying attention, if you, if you want more, um, write me, like send me an email. Uh, the, the email for this podcast is, um, profbkozlowski2 at gmail.com. Um, you can find a link to it in the description on Anchor, I think on Spotify as well. Um, I also maintain a website, um, like a WordPress, that I kind of built over the past few weeks to sort of like centralize all of my various internet projects. Um, that is Professor Kozlowski Lectures at Word.WordPress, I think. Let me check real fast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is going to be very unedited and unfiltered. Um, ProfessorKozlowski.wordpress.com. Like, that's sort of my central site. And you can find all of the, the lectures I've recorded organized, which, again, good, like, th thanks to everyone who has managed to follow along. But it was never intended to be, like, uh, uh, the, the lectures that I recorded were never intended to sort of replace um, having Canvas or Moodle or any of the academic sort of organizational systems. Um, so anyway, if you did like catch a few lectures and missed others or have no idea what you're doing and are somehow listening to this one, um, go to professorkozlowski.wordpress.com and you can find like the syllabi, so to speak, um, for the Intro to Philosophy, Mythology, and General Humanities classes, as well as all the stuff that I'm publishing for Video Game Academy and my own personal blog and just whatever I'm doing that that tends to be the hub at this point um, that's the centralized location um, so if you want to follow along if you want to stay involved that's the way to do it um, but like I said um, if you do have questions if you want to follow up if you want to ask more questions about art or literature or history or any of the stuff that I covered in this class even a little bit um, by all means send me an email like heck suggest a, a topic going forward like if you really enjoyed the Milton lecture we can absolutely run through the rest of Paradise Lost um, if you really enjoyed you know reading Dostoevsky so do I absolutely write me and we can like walk through the whole of Brothers Karamazov or something um, it only takes one voice at this point like I don't have many listeners so you know anybody who gives me a suggestion I'm very apt to listen to um, like, I can't promise I'll immediately jump on things, but, you know, whatever strikes your fancy, um, if you're interested in it, chances are either I'm interested in it, in it as well, or I can be. <laughs> um, like, I'm not above doing a whole bunch of research uh, for just a, you know, crazy one-shot comment. Um, it, it's an opportunity for me to grow, like, uh, as, as a student, as a professor, you know, all of that is good as far as I'm concerned. Um because I'm in a kind of weird place, like, life-wise. Um, not just because it's 2021 and everybody is in a weird place life-wise as we're sort of, like, trying to figure out what life is going to look like after this whole pandemic thing. 
Um, but just, like, I'm kind of stuck. Um, academia is a very complicated sort of institution at this point. Like, we've talked a lot about it in my general humanities class. Um, not enough, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, I I've learned enough of, of the history of, of academia to, to see, you know, its growth out of the, the monastic system, out of all those monasteries in Europe and sort of coming into its own secular identity with the advent of the universities just before the, the Renaissance and then, you know, growing and swelling with the ranks of scientists and, you know, as all these sort of new disciplines grew in the 17th and 18th centuries, academia very much grew along with it. Um, but it's very different now, very commercialized. Um, it's changed, and I suspect it hasn't necessarily changed for the better, um, especially here in America. Like, academia has gotten bloated in the the later part of the 20th century. Like, I was a, I was a kid in the 90s. I am, you know, an elder millennial, I guess is what they're calling them now. Um, I lived in the time when, like, everybody had to go to college. Like, you know, your parents were pushing you out the door. Um, you would go to high school and it would just be sort of, like, drummed into you that you were going to, you know, need good grades, need extracurriculars in order to, to get into a good college so you could go on and, you know, get a good job and so on and so forth. And, you know, that was all before the, the big housing bubble in the, the, like, mid to late 2000s sort of burst and left us all without jobs. Um, like, the just, you know, we... we I literally graduated in 2008, and it was like later that year that everything sort of fell apart. Um, and I did not get a good job. Like, <laughs> that sort of goes without saying. Um, and what's more, like, academia has this sort of in-group mentality when it comes to humanities especially. Um, like, studying philosophy is great fun, and studying history, and studying English, and studying literature, all great fun. Um, but there's not a whole lot of, of demand for, you know, English majors and philosophy majors. Um, like, as much as I distinguished myself in college, like, I received the department award for philosophy, and, you know, I was, like, a big deal in a fairly small pond, or at least, you know, among my group, it didn't mean much at the end of the day. Um, like, I eventually got into the master's program at Boston College, and then again at the seminary, um, but those were all, you know, situations where I had to pay the colleges a lot of money to just show up and attend classes. Um, like, I never received fellowships. I never received, you know, like, actual assistantships. Nobody gave me money to keep studying. Um, and part of that's because I'm bad at marketing myself, as counterintuitive as that may seem, now that I have this, you know, podcast that is moderately successful and I'm well-received by my students and so on and so forth. Um, but it just doesn't mean much to, like, the actual business of academia. Um, academia has gotten very insular in that sense, I suspect. Um, like, I remember when I was at Boston College taking my master's in philosophy, I was the only person, um, in all of my study groups, in most of my classes, at least, that I knew of, who had come from a public school education, um, like, I grew up in public school. I did not go to private school. I, it was admittedly New Jersey public schools, which at that time was, like, the, the top public school system in the country. Um, but even then, it, like, I would shock people when I said that I was from public school. Like, they, they couldn't believe it, especially at Boston College, where so many of those students came from Catholic schools. Um, 
at seminary it was a different story like very different attitude but i i have sort of become increasingly aware of the fact that academia very much contributes to its own success that it is very insular in its way um like those recommendation letters mean a lot more than i may have given them credit once upon a time um and if you are listening to this as an undergraduate thinking about going into academia um make those connections like now uh like if you don't have your professors and you're in your court you're not going to have much of a chance um get your stuff published get your name out there make those connections go to the conferences like you have to do a lot of work selling yourself uh, before you can like actually enjoy a career the alternative is being in my situation like you become an adjunct professor you send out applications to phd programs cross your fingers and hope that you get into them um and as academia is sort of closing its ranks because of various financial and political problems and missteps um it becomes harder and harder to sort of break in and i've been out long enough that it's even more difficult so again if you want to become a philosophy professor i encourage it but know that it is not a terribly pleasant road um getting from there from where you are to where you want to be um my situation is bearable because i've gotten real creative with it like you know by sort of getting an internet presence by applying and working at a bunch of different schools um but it's not easy um uh, we are very much the the minimum wage employees of academia and academia is very willing to ignore um the fact that you know we are not getting paid nearly enough like i know multiple professors um at the community colleges and elsewhere uh who you know they work at two different community colleges in order like part-time teaching you know two three classes a semester um in order to just make ends meet like that's what i do i i teach at like three different schools uh depending on you know what classes are available um and it's like it it's not full-time pay <laughs> um you know i i make it like a couple thousand bucks a class that's it and it's not enough to live on like my wife and i together make just enough to you know afford rent and food and and basic necessities and stuff um if you were looking for a full-time professorship well that's that's a different animal and as far as i can tell the jobs are out there like i i keep an eye on them um but they all require the phd and the phd seems to be the bottleneck at this point um especially in philosophy probably not so much in english um but yeah if you were thinking about like actually becoming a professor actually going into an academic academic setting maybe consider your other options this isn't a great time to do that um and as the nation is growing gradually more hostile towards intelligentsia like i say that knowing full well that like part of trump's appeal in 2016 and throughout his presidency was sort of the anti-intellectual bent to it um as you know on the one hand the conservatives are becoming more and more suspicious of academic academics and as the liberals are becoming less and less influenced by academics i say carefully because that's a very tricky business um academia is going to have to figure out what it's doing with itself um and that means change upheaval and insecurity for anyone who's on the bottom rungs of that or trying to bust into it 
Um, like you better have your ducks in a row and you better be very willing to, to do the footwork and making sure to get your name out there um, if you in fact want to make this your job and not end up like killing yourself to do it. Um, like it's fun, don't get me wrong. I'd much rather, you know, sit at home and talk into my microphone about Plato or, you know, Bulgakov or Dostoevsky or, you know, Goethe or Marlowe or whoever um, than to half of the work that would pay so much better. Um, but, you know, it, it's it's frustrating. There are, there are bad days. And this last week, uh, my family has dealt with some fairly major health concerns. And, like, it is just even more daunting um, when we don't have the money or security to deal with it. Um, so go into academia carefully. Do it judiciously. There's, you know, a, a lot of dangers ahead of you. But anyway, like, I suspect that this is going to be all tangent today. Um, at any rate, you know, for all of that, for all of my caveats, for all of my frustrations, for all of my, you know, I don't even know, like, for all of my anger um, with this situation that I find myself in, I am proud at the end of the day. Um, I am happy to have made as much as I have over the last year. Like, this has been a shockingly productive year for me. Um, and when a lot of people look back and remember 2020, they're going to remember, you know, unemployment or feeling, or being afraid of eviction or political craziness or I don't even know. Um, but they're also, in large part, going to remember a lot of dead time like, I see a lot of friends of mine who are, like, stuck at home, unemployed or whatever, or working a minimum wage job and very frustrated at not being able to go out, not being able to do the stuff that they usually like to do, um, being basically tasked with filling the time. Uh, like, I know a lot of people who are playing a lot more video games, reading a lot more books, seeing a lot more movies because they don't know how to fill the time that the pandemic has sort of opened up for them. Um, I am very much in the opposite camp. Like, I have been working my ass off um, to the point that I'm shocked, like, profoundly shocked, and not like this is me, you know, doing the backhanded compliment thing where I'm like, hmm, let me toot my own horn, um, but, like, legitimately very shocked at the fact that I have been able to produce all of these lectures in such a short time. Like, I had not uploaded anything to the Professor Kozlowski Lectures podcast a year and two weeks ago and now there's like there's got to be close to 100 lectures on there now all of which are like an hour to an hour and a half long um like that's just insane um and that's on top of you know making a class from scratch for my church um that's on top of you know starting a startup like web page to talk about video games with a few friends of mine and, and contributing articles on a fairly regular basis um, that's on top of some really hard work that I did on uh, my decolonizing post after the Black Lives Matter movements and after the death of George Floyd. Um, like, I tore apart the Lord of the Rings for a solid, like, 30-page article. Um, and one of my friends wants me to get it published, but I'm still not quite sure how or where or whether that's even terribly smart at this point. Um, because at the end of the day... Like, as much as I have my grievances with, with Bulgakov and as much as I want some kind of financial, you know, stability to go along with the work that I'm doing, 
at the end of the day, I think one of the reasons why Bulgakov appeals to me so much is because he sees the value of the work in and of itself. Um, and I kind of have to. Like, I'm not going to, you know, make a whole bunch of money doing these podcasts. They're free. You're welcome to listen to them. Like, I don't even advertise. Um, maybe one day I will once I'm disconnected from the schools. Um, like, honestly, I'm kind of terrified that they haven't, you know, demanded I take them down out of some sort of sense of, you know, copyright infringement or, you know, Montclair claiming ownership of the, the lectures I've recorded. Like, I would fight that. I think it would be dumb if they tried, so maybe that's why, or maybe they just don't care, or maybe it's small potatoes. Who knows? Um, but at any rate, it's free. You're welcome to listen to it. You're in my class, listen to them. You're required to. You're not in my class, listen to them. You're free to. Like, no restrictions here. Um, I do this stuff out of the sheer joy of it because it's interesting and worthwhile and meaningful. Um, and one of the things that I've noticed, you know, just in all of this is that there are a lot of people out there trying to just, you know, educate themselves, like to learn about this stuff. Um, and to some degree, you know, a lot of it is associated with like fandoms and, and, you know, popular culture, you know, like our, our video game posts, I, I spend a lot of time writing about various video games that come out. Like we we're walking our way through near automata and, you know, writing about Lord of the Rings or Fahrenheit 451. Like those are books that a lot of people love and a lot of people read and are sort of gravitated to. Um, and I kind of hope that I'll always be able to straddle that line, um, that, you know, I can talk about Lord of the Rings and tie that to the stuff we've talked about in this class, like Dante, like um, the mythology lectures that I, that I delivered that have to deal with Tolkien. Like, to me, it's all of one piece, all one thing. Um, a love of beauty, of art, of, you know, philosophy, of profundity. It's searching for truth in some sense, like in a very real sense. Um, and, you know, without the ability to, to, you know, discover that truth scientifically, when we're talking about, like, the big questions that deal with how human beings behave and what meaning and purpose they have, I find it really valuable to look at what, say, Bulgakov has to say, and as well as, like, what Descartes has to say, or what Aquinas has to say, or Heidegger, for that matter. Um, this is why I'm doing it. Like, I as I probably talked about in my Philosophy of America lectures um, quite a while ago at this point, um, I think one of the main problems we as Americans suffer from is a lack of coherent ideology. Um, like, we, you know, have our opinions, Republican or Democrat, pro-life, pro-choice, but they're all disunited. Um, they're all sort of scattered. And I'm increasingly aware of how even art today, you know, as polished as it is, like you watch any of the Marvel productions and you will see polish for days. Um, there's also a certain amount of insubstantiality. Um, like I, I love the Marvel movies. My wife and I are always going to see them and we, we very much miss being able to see them since the, the lockdown. Uh, we're very much looking forward to Black Widow later this year. Um, I am crazy looking forward to the new Doctor Strange. Like, Sam Raimi's directing it? What the hell? Um, but at the same time, like, with some few exceptions, looking at you, Black Panther, Thor Ragnarok, um, they're very confused about their meaning. 
Um, like we just watched WandaVision. Everybody loved WandaVision. Like the, the internet was buzzing with talk about it. Um, but it didn't really have a thesis. <laughs> um, like we're, we're sitting here talking about Bulgakov and I'm emphasizing these themes of courage and, you know, justice and this idea that like the devil, this symbol of evil for literally thousands of years at the time that Bulgakov is writing, um, is being employed to sort of, you know, contrast the evil of the of the supernatural world this true evil with this sort of duplicitous evil of the soviets um this evil that you know causes people to be terrible to each other and to lie to cover their butts um like one division brings up a lot of ideas and it doesn't do much with them like it brings up the the whole you know sitcoms as distraction as you know pleasure um which is you know very important in this moment like we definitely need to be reevaluating the possibility that we are evading our social responsibilities by going into escapism by by looking at these sort of fictional worlds that that we find more pleasant than our own um but then you get into the ethical consequences like there's that scene where all the townspeople are like you know we dreamed your nightmares like holy shit that's dark but then what like that's it um that that insubstantiality that sort of lack of thematic coherence um like more often than not i find that contemporary art is way more concerned with the effect and the moment than the through line um like wandavision has some great moments don't get me wrong like oh my gosh when she's like kissing vision goodbye like geez like both my wife and i were a puddle um but it had much more to do with what we were bringing to it than what the artists involved were communicating to us like if you look for the central philosophy the central message of wandavision good luck to you i, I have no idea what that might be um but at the end of the day they succeed so much at making us think that it's something profound that it's kind of hard for us to distinguish. And again, I think that ties right back to the fact that we aren't terribly discerning. Um, we generally can get fooled by bright colors and, you know, swelling music and think that we've experienced something profound when we haven't. Um, we can be lied to. We can be hypnotized, in short. And that's the great thing about Bulgakov here. Like, especially here in this last section, he's emphasizing so much um, the comeuppance. The, you know, here is the devil having gone through Moscow, having, you know, wrecked up the place and Korovyev and Behemoth, you know, swinging from chandeliers and setting fire to Griboyadovs. Um, but reality, reality is the thing that the Soviet dream keeps bumping up against, the Soviet nightmare, for that matter. Um, on some level that's what i want to get at here like in the sense that this is the last bulgakov lecture and also in the sense that this is probably my last lecture period and it's sort of i'm gonna try and make it dovetail whether or not i succeed or not is another matter uh but what i'm aspiring to do like what the the sort of end goal of you know my life or at least my life's work as far as it has shown up in the last year, notwithstanding my novels and stuff, um, a large part of what I've tried to do is 
point to meaningful things and talk about why they are meaningful. I don't want, you know, just showmanship. I don't want just flash and color and swelling music and the sensation that we've experienced something meaningful even when we haven't. Um, no, I want to get down to the brass tacks. I want to expose the writers who wear no clothes, in short. You know, you think of Shaw and his all sound and fury and the service of this Nietzschean claptrap or, or Moliere with all of his great jokes ultimately covering up the fact that he really doesn't seem to care much about the morality that his characters are, are violating. Um, likewise, I think Bulgakov has something really important to say. Um, I think this idea that, you know, reality is something we cannot disagree with um, is something we need to be reminded of right now at this moment. Um, I am not a relativist by any extent of the imagination. Like, if you listen to my Philosophy of America lectures or half of my philosophy lectures, that will become abundantly clear. Um, I tend to think that there is good and evil, um, that there is some standard by which we can judge. Um, and insofar as there are degrees there and we need to be aware of them, and insofar as we need to know um, not to just go around judging people, like, because there's so much that we don't understand or appreciate, um, we also can't assume that morality is therefore forfeit, um, that we don't need to rigorously train ourselves to be moral, to question like both authorities um, and the sources that we get our information from. Um, like that's, it's been a big problem the last year. Who do we trust? Why do we trust them? What is truth in short, just as Pilate asks, um, both in the Bible and here in Bulgakov. Um, and Bulgakov has an answer, you'll remember. Like Yeshua, doesn't miss, miss a beat. He tells him, you know, you're sick, you're faint-hearted, you are suffering, and it makes me sad to be a part of that suffering. There is an answer to the question, what is truth? Um, whether or not we can figure out what that answer is doesn't change the fact that there is, in fact, an answer. Then um, maybe it's just faith that leads me to believe that. But then you end up right back where Bulgakov told us before. You know, there's Berlioz saying there is no life after death. You know, I, I'm just going to die and be done with it. And the devil says that's a pretty shitty way of looking at the world. Um, maybe it's true, maybe it's not true. But at the end of the day, yours is really crappy in comparison to all of these people who firmly believe um, that there is reality, that there is an afterlife, that there is something meaningful about what we are doing. Like, if you are in fact a nihilist, then there's no reason to be a nihilist. That's kind of the funny, like, illogicality of nihilism. If you are, in fact, a relativist, then there's no reason to be a relativist. Um, say what you want about the deluded. The deluded have convictions, um, and there is something consistent about those convictions. That's what makes them dangerous when they are bad convictions. What make, It's what makes them powerful when they are good convictions. Um, so let's let's look here at the end of the Master and Margarita. Let's let's talk through the sort of ultimate conclusions that Bulgakov comes to. Um, and first I should stress, like, as weird as this ending is, and as much as there isn't a whole lot that I have to say about it, which is, again, part of the reason why I feel so free to just, you know, ramble um, even more than I usually do, 
Um, there is some fun stuff that happens here. Like we get Kuroviev and Behemoth just wrecking uh, Moscow. Like I positively love the scene where like the secret police have been engaging in their investigation and they like interrogate all of the characters we've seen so far. Like we get this description of Lakotia being interrogated and Anushka being interrogated. Like all these random characters all over the place. Um, like, poor St Stiopa Lakotiev, like, barely sets foot off the plane, and they've got him in a cell. Um, I think there's actually something in one of the other versions that I read. Like, I don't know why, but, like, the other translation, um, that I, that I, was the first one that I read before I read the Pibir Volokonsky, they have it so, like, Stiopa Lakotiev gets off the plane, like, he finally makes it back from Yalta, and he somehow runs into Kuroviev, who, like, zips him right back there. I don't know if I imagined that, like, if so, I feel like Bulgakov should have added it but um, at any rate Lakotiev is absolutely spirited away into a cell the secret police put together this entire investigation only the trouble is they can't actually get to apartment number 50 um, like they send agents in they, they scour the place multiple times and they never find anything um, like no evidence that people are living there no evidence of the people like Woland who are in fact there you know it even gets to the point that like it says that they send in Baron Michael and we saw like Baron Michael go into the the great ball at Satan's and get shot there like that's where he's murdered um but literally 10 minutes after he goes in the secret police like send in a team to scour the apartment and there's no one there not even Baron Michael and they cannot figure this out they cannot understand how this is possible um, this is the reality that they are bumping up against. Again, a reality that they can't understand, that they can't prove or, or decide, but reality nonetheless. Um, and for all of their investigations, for all of their, you know, efforts, um, that's kind of the key here. They're looking for an answer that they are not going to receive, and they are ignoring the truth of the situation that you know the devil and company are in fact these supernatural powers these unclean powers um as anushka and most of the residents of 302 biz are are willing to admit at this point um but finally they do like there's evidence of people moving like a window opens up and you know they can hear music playing and a whole two teams of secret police go marching up the stairs one up the front stairs one up the back stairs they charge into the room and again, nothing, but now Behemoth is there. Uh, like, good old Behemoth, the cat. And, of course, they treat him just like he's a normal, regular cat, because, of course, they would. Even when, like, Behemoth starts talking to them, they, they ignore him. Um, like, they assume that it's a ventriloquist act. Um, but things immediately spiral out of control. Like, there's this whole business where they try and shoot Behemoth, and Behemoth is shot, and he, like, falls over and does his whole dramatic death scene. But it turns out that, like, all he has to do is, like, drink from the Primus. Which, P.S., for all of my research, I have still yet to figure out exactly what the deal is with the Primus. Um, like, it's apparently something that keeps... It's, like, one part stove and one part, like, f fuel container... Um, so yeah, think of this as, like, weirdly being some kind of portable stove that Behemoth is carrying around with him. Uh, again, I have yet to figure out exactly what the deal is with the Primus, but this is apparently ubiquitous enough in Soviet Russia that, like, everybody has one and everybody knows what they are. Um, and it's apparently portable enough that it's okay for Behemoth to, like, be running around Moscow with one in his hand and everyone to just be kind of 
curious about it. Um, at any rate, like he drinks from the Primus and he's back to normal and he jumps up on the chandelier and they're like trying to tear him down and finally it ends up in this fighter fight and like Behemoth's got his browning and he's shooting at the secret police who have their Mausers out and everybody, like nothing hits. Like it's all blanks or something. Um, for supernatural reasons or whatever, they shoot up the entire apartment and like the chandelier is reduced to tatters and yet Behemoth is fine and they're fine and finally Behemoth sets the whole place on fire, jumps out the window and we see him and Koroviev doing basically the same thing to, like, the currency shop. Um, the, and, like, just further and further chaos ensues. Like, they burn down number 302 biz, gone. Like, the apartment and all just utterly destroyed. They go to this currency shop, and as I mentioned before, like, they've got these shops where you can only spend foreign currency there. Um, and remember, like, that whole talk that I had with Nikonor Ivanovich, the... the you know, chairman's association guy who got in trouble for speculating in foreign currency. Um, and we talked a little bit about how, you know, it was illegal to have foreign currency unless you had a permit to, that it was worth much more, um, that while the ruble was, was fluctuating wildly and suffering the effects of inflation and deflation, um, on the other hand, foreign currency was fixed and therefore more valuable. And a lot of people, given their opportunity, would, would get a lot of foreign currency. Um, now, it's not to say that, like, no Russians are allowed to have foreign currency. Like, some are. Um, Bulgakov himself, because he sold his books and plays abroad, actually had quite a bit of foreign currency. And he was allowed to. It was, you know, he had a permit for it or, or whatever it came down to. Um, but generally speaking, your average citizen is not supposed to have a bunch of foreign currency. Um, so these shops, the ones that only accept foreign currency, are largely there to cater only to wealthy Russians, like the ones who have these permits, i.e. people who are enjoying the benefits of the corrupt society and the corruption in that society, and foreigners, which as we've also said, you know, the Russians are very interested, um, like the party is very interested in, in looking good when foreign ambassadors and stuff come to visit. Like they want everyone to go back home talking about how great communism is and how great the Soviet world is. So you've got these foreign currency shops that treat sp foreigners specifically. Um, and you can see like Bulgakov actually takes a certain amount of joy in depicting how hypocritical this whole situation is. Like two different you know, we've got Behemoth and Kroviev, they go in the door and they, they you know, get up by on some line that you don't know we don't have foreign currency. Like, you don't know anything about us. And then Behemoth starts, like, eating stuff, like the Mandarin and the, the chocolate bar. Um, and then people get mad at him and, and they're, they're, he's getting in trouble. And he delivers, like, he and Kroviev deliver this rather impassioned speech about how unfair it is um, that, you know, this good stuff should be available cheaply to foreigners and to like party officials but not to the average man and Bulgakov notices that there are two miracles as a consequence of this speech like one of the um patrons one of the the people who are shopping like jumps up and is like yeah it is unfair which wouldn't make sense if that was a foreigner like here he is this supposed person from out of town getting very upset and uppity about the fact that you know Russians are not allowed to enjoy these benefits and he like beats the head 
like he grabs the plate that the chocolate was on and he like beats this guy over the head with it the guy in the lilac suit and he also starts speaking russian and is indignant because apparently all of the patrons at this point are disguised as foreigners and are actually just lying through their teeth that's the miracle that bulgakov is talking about here um you know it seems like all these foreigners are magically speaking fluent russian when in fact the quote miracle is of the same black magic variety as the apartment guy who like you know kept playing with his apartments until he swapped up his three bedroom apartment or three room apartment for a five room apartment um that's the same black magic that Woland has been exposing this whole time and it is fitting that Kuroviev and Behemoth reveal yet another scene of black magic in this sort of ending process um but they set the store on fire too because you know why not um and then just to finish everything off they go to Griboyadov's and you'll remember, like, we spent a good bit of time talking about Grubayadovs and, you know, this big place where all the members of Mass Elite were eating, and they've got that fancy restaurant that serves the really good perch really cheaply. Um, and this looks like it's about to do the same thing, like they're going to come in and wreck the place, and you've got, like, this random receptionist or something giving them trouble, asking for their cards. Um, but the really cool thing is that Archibald Archibaldovich um the pirate guy like bulgakov refers to him in both chapter five and here as like a freebooter or a pirate guy like everybody thinks he looks like a pirate for some reason um and p.s archibald archibaldovich has got to be my favorite minor character in this entire book like the, the this book is littered with great characters behemoth and you know woolen's retinue especially um but even so like archibald archibaldovich the pirate owner of griboyadov's He's just got such great moments, especially in this scene. Um, so he, like, chastises the, the receptionist. And, you know, he is... He, of all of the characters that we've run into, like, even more so than Rimsky, um, he has figured it out. He has figured out what has happened. He heard about what happened at the Variety Theater. He's heard the name Koroviev and Behemoth. He knows that there's a cat involved. He knows that they're responsible for all these supernatural happenings and that, like, some kind of magic nonsense is going on in Moscow. And Archibald Archibaldovich realizes that they are here to wreck the place. Um, and he stops it. Like, he stops the receptionist. He brings them to a seat he treats them with the most deference and he makes sure that all of their needs are met and he gets them all the best food doesn't charge them anything he treats them like vips in short you know like they should be treated he sees the truth in short um and bulgakov even compliments him on being like supernaturally perceptive which p.s the only other character who's shown that supernatural perspective is probably Yeshua himself. So, you know, again, Archibald Archibaldovich is a really cool dude. Um, cool in the sense of, like, being admirable, but also being really calm and actually having the situation really well under control. Um, like, there's that, even that part where there are a couple of actual writers who are sitting there eating and, like, the one lady is getting indignant that they're not being treated properly. And Archibald Archibaldovich smoothly sort of, like, sends a waiter their way without, you know himself leaving the side of Kuroviev and Behemoth um, and then as things are getting underway as they're being fed Archibaldovich sneaks off to his room like puts on his coat gets ready to leave like he he packs up the the two ballocks these really valuable like chunks of salmon um, and packs them up ready to go because he knows like all hell is about to break loose and it does 
Um, like the secret police bust in and they immediately start shooting at Behemoth and Koroviev and Behemoth immediately dumps the Primus all over the place and Graboidovs goes up in flames and hilariously like the last part of this scene is Archibald Archibaldovich like getting everybody else out and Bulgakov even describes him as you know standing there like going down with his ship Um, it's just so good um, but yeah, like if you look at the last paragraph on 358, the last paragraph of the chapter, it says, Having stepped out through a side entrance beforehand, not fleeing or hurrying anywhere, like a captain who must be the last to leave his burning brig, Archibald Archibaldovich stood calmly in his summer coat with silk lining the two Balak logs under his arm. Like he's just... Oh, he's so good. Um, and Bulgakov is so awesome in his description here. Just, you know, the one guy who's figured everything out, the one guy who knows exactly what's going on, the one guy who's sort of been here taking care of things from the beginning. You know, he goes nobly down with his restaurant and his, you know, whole, like, project here. Um, and you assume he gets out on time. Like, I'm pretty sure he does. But even so, it's just a great image. Um... But of course, the the real substance of this section has less to do with the actual events, like the the exciting exchanges between the secret police and and Wolin's retinue and and you know all the chaos they cause. It has more to do with the fates of the characters that we've been following so far, um, and we do systematically get all of their fates resolved. Um, and as much as you know, we could look at the epilogue and look at what happens to you know Lakodeev or Veronuka or Rimsky or um, even Aloisi Magarovich, who like becomes the new Lakodeev and ends up being just as obnoxious to Veronuka as Rimsky or as Lakodeev was. Um, like it, it's really the the main characters that I want to focus on here, um, specifically the master Margarita. Um, pilot of all people and homeless as well as the devil's retinue in general um, and notice like a lot of this really comes to a head in chapter 29 the fate of the master and margarita is decided um, and to some degree like when i teach this this is usually the chapter i close on if i have enough time to get this far in the book like this is what i insist my students read is their sort of understanding of how all this comes together the rest is gravy by contrast i think um, but notice we get very much the prescription. Like a long time ago, back when we talked about the, the introduction of our hero, our hero enters, I said that you should be aware that, you know, Bulgakov is, is dispensing judgment. That's a lot of what Woland and his retinue are here to do, um, to be just, to, you know, expose all the lies, like bring forth the truth and issue justice, punish the people who have done wrong. Um, and when I said that, I said, think about Pilot and think about the Master, because both of them are in these unique circumstances. They are not out-and-out -out liars or grifters or opportunists the way that so many of the other characters are here. Um, they are perhaps guilty of the greatest vice, cowardice, which, you know, we just heard Yeshua in the chapters past tell us that cowardice is the greatest of the, the vices, the worst um, the worst behavior you can do. And both the pi both Pilot and the Master are guilty of cowardice. They both opted to cover their butts rather than speak the truth. Um, Pilot did not, like, pardon Yeshua. Instead, he executed him despite the fact that he was innocent and, more than that, a good man. 
the master destroyed his own manuscript rather than face the secret police. Um, both of them have a similar crime here. Um, and we finally get in this chapter on the fate of the master and Margarita, the, the punishment, the judgment. Um, and it comes in a fairly weird way. Um, Woland and company are apparently standing like over Moscow watching the whole, watching the sunset on the city. And we do get a lot of really apocalyptic imagery in this chapter and some of the others, these more abstract, almost surreal chapters, like the one at Sparrow Hills um, and, you know, the Forgiveness and Eternal Rest chapter. Um, we get the sense that Moscow is kind of disintegrating before us. Like, you know, it obviously isn't destroyed or else the characters, you know, that we see in the epilogue would not be able to enjoy their lives. But we do get all of this imagery, like... Um, the this image of Woland watching the the sun set over the city and it like the setting sun reflects off of all of the the windows in the city uh, as though it shattered um, like this kind of description we get pretty frequently we see it from the sun we see it in the moon um, this sort of fragmentation of these luminous bodies um, as though you know the entire universe is breaking down around Woland as he's departing from Moscow. It's evocative. Um, I'm not sure what it means. Like, if you wanted to hear my interpretation, well, so do I, because I, like, I, I don't know what Bulgakov intended by this imagery. Um, it is neatly apocalyptic, especially when you have, like, Woland and company riding their horsemen like the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You know, Woland, Korobia, Behemoth, and Azazello all on their dark black steeds overlooking the city. Like, it's hard not to imagine that, uh, you know, in line with Revelation and, and the end of the world. Um, but we'll come back to that. At any rate, he's sitting over the city, talking to Azazello, watching, you know, these plumes of smoke rise up on the horizon as Koroviev and uh, Behemoth start, like, setting fire to things. Um, and they're visited of, by, of all people, Matthew Levi, um, like it, it's, it's easy to miss at first, but finally, like we get a dialogue tag fairly, fairly well along, um, to sort of tell us this. Um, but so if we look at page 360, we can just walk our way through this. Um, here's something made Woolen turn his attention to the round tower behind him on the roof. From its walls stepped a tattered, mud-stained, sullen man in a chiton in homemade sandals, black bearded. Ha! exclaimed Woland, looking mockingly at the newcomer. Least of all would I expect you here. What have you come with, an uninvited guest? I have come to see you, spirit of evil and sovereign of shadows, the newcomer replied, glowering inimically at Woland. If you've come to see me, why don't you wish me a good evening, former tax collector? Woland said sternly. Because I don't wish you a good anything, the newcomer replied insolently. Notice the relationship between Matthew Levi and Woland here. Um, like, Woland, as we've noticed on multiple occasions at this point, he wields a ton of power, and he's fairly responsible with that power. Like, remember back when Margarita and he were talking, um, and Woland complimented her on not asking him for things, that, you know, people with power will give it to, give it of themselves willingly. Um, notice that here, Matthew Levi deals with Woland insolently. Um, he's not polite. Um, Woland is reduced in his stature here. He is subservient. 
uh, Matthew Levi seems to be coming as a representative of Yeshua and of God, question mark, insofar as there is a God in this book. Like, that would be the logical sort of assumption, but that's, there's no indication here. Like, I mentioned earlier that we don't see much in, in the way of glimpses of heaven. Like, this is actually as close as we're going to get. Um, but if anything, there's no promise by Bulgakov that heaven exists at all in his world. Um, like, there's a little hint, which we'll get to, um, but that's as close as we get. Like, we don't get much of an image. Like, if there's, if there's an organizational hierarchy in heaven, we don't know about it. And we definitely don't know where Matthew Levi fits into it. Heck, we don't even know where Yeshua fits into it. Um, this is not the Christian image of, like, Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. Um, Bulgakov eschews these supernatural descriptions, probably because of the censors, but also because it just wouldn't fit. Um, you know, he's focused dead set on Woland and Company, not in their capacity as Lord of Hell, but rather in his capacity as messing around with Russia as judge. Um, so Woland confronts him on this, though. Um, but you'll have to reconcile yourself to that, Woland objected, and a grin twisted his mouth. You no sooner appear on the roof than you produce an absurdity, and I'll tell you what it is. It's your intonation. You uttered your words as if you don't acknowledge shadows or evil either. Kindly consider the question, what would your good do if evil did not exist? And what would the earth look like if shadows disappeared from it? Shadows are cast by objects and people. Here is the shadow of my sword. Trees and living beings also have shadows. Do you want to skin the whole earth, tearing all the trees and living things off it because of your fantasy of enjoying bare light? You're stupid. Notice, notice Woolen's rebuttal here. Matthew Levi immediately assumes superiority over Woland, and Woland responds, You need me. What would your good do if evil did not exist? What could light be without shadow? Woland emphasizes that he is crucial to the cosmic order. But notice Matthew Levi's response, I won't argue with you, old sophist. Bulgakov doesn't give us a definitive answer to Woland. We don't have enough information to say whether Woland is being honest here, whether, you know, the evil, the darkness is, in fact, like, intrinsic to understanding the light, or if he's not. Like, Levi and company, they seem to think that Woland isn't necessary, that he is just an aberration of some kind, that he is evil. And as much as we've seen Woland be just in his evil, we don't see any... We don't see any metaphysical explanation here. Like, we've talked a lot in this class about good and evil. Um, like, all the way back to Dante and Marlowe and, and like, Milton. Um, in all three cases, we talked about the medieval conception of, of good and evil, where, you know, good is the center of the universe and evil is any departure from it. It is negative. It doesn't have any substance of its own. Um, and the devil weeps because he is separated from the only source of goodness. Um, it would seem, through a lot of what Bulgakov has been showing us, that this isn't quite true, that the devil has his own code, that evil sort of exists in opposition to goodness. But Matthew's suggestion here, and the sort of interaction that we see between Woland and Matthew, it could easily fall into either camp. 
we could see evil as its own force separate from goodness or we could see it the way the medievals did where you know evil isn't necessary and woland is just trying to vainly justify his own work and his own role to matthew the representative of the clean powers of goodness um it's hard to say what exactly bulgakov is getting at here besides the fact that you know there is a good there is an evil and the, that good power does not seem to regard the evil as a necessary part of its functioning remember the the like epigraph at the very beginning of this book that quote from goethe that you know i am the power that continually wills evil and, and continually works good that suggests that as much as Woland sees himself as a crucial part of the process, as much as, you know, Margarita and the Master rely on him, um, recognize his power and, you know, his quasi-goodness, his fairness, his justness, um, Matthew Levi does not, and perhaps shouldn't, is right not to regard him. Um, Notice the way that this goes on, though. You also cannot argue with me for the reason I've already mentioned. You're stupid, Woland replied and asked. Well, make it short. Don't weary me. Why have you appeared? He sent me. What did he tell you to say, slave? I'm not a slave, Matthew Levi replied, growing ever angrier. I'm his disciple. You and I speak different languages as usual, responded Woland, but the things we speak of don't change for all that. Notice, Woland calls Matthew Levi slave. Matthew Levi calls himself disciple. And Woland basically argues, yeah, we use different words, but they mean the same thing. We use the different languages, but the things we speak of do not change. A disciple is a slave from Woland's perspective. And remember, you know, this goes right back to Milton, when the devil is futzing about, talking about how he would rather, you know, be lord in heaven than serve in hell he is suggesting that anyone who did not rebel is a slave and he's not wrong it's just that in this cosmic order being a slave is an honorable profession it is an honorable thing it is being a disciple following god willingly and following god by force to woland are the same thing but to Matthew are different things, and he emphasizes that difference. He has read the master's work, said Matthew Levi, meaning Yeshua has read the master's work, and asks you to take the master with you and reward him with peace. Is that hard for you to do, spirit of evil? Nothing is hard for me to do, answered Woland. You know that very well. He paused and added, but why don't you take him with you into the light? He does not deserve the light. He deserves peace, Levi said in a sorrowful voice. Tell him it will be done, Woland replied and added, his eye flashing, and leave me immediately. He asks that she who loved him and suffered because of him also be taken with him, Levi addressed Woland pleadingly for the first time. We would never have thought of it without you. Go. Matthew Levi disappeared after that, and Woland called out Azazello and ordered him, fly to them and, and arrange it all. Notice first what the actual justice is here. Matthew Levi, at the behest of Yeshua, comes to Woland and says, the master and Margarita do not get the light. They do not go to heaven. They do not deserve the light. They do not deserve heaven. They deserve peace. 
and we will see this borne out. Like in the the whole next chapter is basically ma the master and Margarita living at home, and it's not great. Like they're frustrated, they are struggling. Um, again, as you know, we were emphasizing before. At this point, Margarita has gotten fierce. Like the witch cast in her eyes um, is very strong. This is not the woman that the master used to know. And likewise, the master, he's broken. Um, his suffering has damaged him seriously. And, you know, he's sitting at home in his underwear, like the same underwear that he had, that he was wearing at the insane asylum. He's got his clothes there. Like they're all in the wardrobe. The Wolin made everything just as he said, you know, back to normal, just as it was. But the master doesn't feel any need to dress, to, to sort of make things normal. He's given up, as we've said. Um... And ultimately, like, as Zello shows up and he has this conversation with them and, you know, he says to Margarita, hey, we're, we're going to do this next thing. And Margarita agrees to it immediately. You know, no more hedging because she has changed, because she has grown fierce and courageous. And Azazello poisons them. Like, they die. And Azazello brings them back with more poison, strangely enough. Um, and they're a little frustrated with him at first, but importantly, they have changed back. Like... All of Margarita's witchiness, her wickedness, is gone. And all of the Master's fear and, and indecision is also gone. They're back to who they were. But they don't get to go to heaven. They get, as we said, peace. Um, so as we follow them, like, first we see them hanging out with, with Woland, like the scene with, with the horses where all of their, their true forms are revealed. Um, and it's significant, you know, the, the, these true forms that we see, um, like there's this whole long passage where we, we get the descriptions here in Forgiveness and Eternal Refuge on page 379 to 380. Um, we have Koroviev, who is now, um, a dark violet knight with a most gloomy and never smiling face. Um, we've got Behemoth, no longer a cat, entertaining the Prince of Darkness, a slim youth, a demon page, the best jester the world has ever seen. Um, we see Azazello, uh, and he is in a true form, the demon of the waterless desert, the killer demon. And Margarita and the Master are apparently also changed as well. Um, we don't get to see Margarita, like she doesn't look at herself and it's her perspective we enjoy this from. Um, but we do see the Master now wearing the stars of spurs on his jackboots. Um, like the demon youth, he flew with his eyes fixed on the moon, yet smiling to it as a close and beloved friend. And then, of course, Woland. And this is perhaps the keenest description. Woland also flew in his true guise. Margarita could not have said what his horse's bridle was made of, but thought it might be chains of moonlight. And the horse itself was a mass of darkness, and the horse's mane a storm cloud, and the rider's spurs the white flecks of stars. It's cosmically significant who these people are. Um, like Woland especially, this, this being of darkness whose spurs are stars... Um, who has his horse, this cloud of darkness, chained with moonlight. Like, I don't even know what the, the sort of symbolism is, besides the fact that this is Woland, a cosmic power, something eternal and primordial and, like, impossibly, profoundly powerful. Um, as ancient as God himself in many ways, it seems to be implied here. 
um, but still, you know, a creative thing in its own right. Like, again, Bulgakov's metaphysics isn't clear, it's just the imagery that we're sort of given this glimpse. Um, but what's more, like, notice that it is moonlight that he controls. And Woland even, like, tells us, like, at this point, Master, the Master and Margarita are riding with them, and they, they ride to Pilot, of all places. Um, and, you know, we're, we're told that Pilot is being tortured. That, like, Pilot is still on the exact same balcony that he was on, uh, like, 2,000 years ago. Um, he is still suffering. Like, he is in this sleep, and this eternal tormenting sleep. Um, and he is tormented every full moon because he's reminded of that conversation that he and Yeshua had in his dream and weren't able to finish because Pilate had executed him. Like, this moonlight apparently represents to Pilate the prospect of heaven, uh, the prospect of being able to do things right again, of having, you know, the opportunity to fix the mistakes that he made. Um, and yet it becomes a torment to him. It becomes suffering because he it's not true it's not real but he is freed here like margarita first asks you know 12,000 moons for one moon long ago isn't that too much asked margarita repeating this story with frieda said woland but don't trouble yourself here margarita everything will turn out right the world is built on that notice what woland says here like, as much as I've sort of stressed the, the two lines earlier in the book, first, Yeshua's line about the truth is easy and pleasant to speak, and then later, the, this thought that manuscripts don't burn, that ideas are permanent, and even that bit about, you know, the Yeshua saying that, like, cowardice is the worst of all vices. You know, we've had some profound lines in here, but notice that, like, the only metaphysical detail that, that Bulgakov gives us through Woland's voice is this conviction. Everything will turn out right. The world is built on that. Like it is this fundamental cosmic truth that the world will correct itself. That everything will be all right in the end. That's, you know, a pretty heavy thing to say in a book that's been this real about like the way that the universe works. That is that has a place for Woland the judge. Um, the, the punisher of lies and, and evil. Um, Boland is a part of that, and he recognizes that. Like, he is not evil for the sake of evil. He isn't destructive for the sake of destruction. He has a role to play in the cosmic order. And yeah, it is a role opposed to mercy. It is a role opposed to whatever light Matthew, Levi, and Yeshua seem to represent. But it is a role within that order. It is a role subservient to Yeshua, but also in league with Yeshua, um, not opposed to Yeshua in some real sense. Like, yes, the, the, the master, or rather, Woland disagrees with what Yeshua has to say. Um, yes, Woland has a different way of going about things. But at the end of the day, the world is built on things coming out right. And Woland acknowledges that. Now, Margarita tries what she did with Frieda again. She says, let him go to free Pilate from his torments, but it doesn't work this time. Um, notice, like, we get the, the mountains tremble and the, the, there's an avalanche and so on, but Woolen, you know, tells him, don't shout in the mountains, he's accustomed to avalanches anyway, and it won't rouse him. But he turns to the master and says, well, now you can finish your novel with one phrase. And the master 
seemed to have been expecting this as he stood motionless and looked at the seated procurator. He cupped his hands to his mouth and cried out so that the echo leaped over the unpeopled and unforested mountains. You're free. You're free. He's waiting for you. Just as we saw Margarita free Frieda, as, you know, Frieda was hers to rescue, so the master is responsible for freeing Pilate. And as soon as he says this, as soon as he says you're free and he's waiting for you, Pilate is released. He and his dog, Banga, they both get to go up the path of moonlight. They are met by Yeshua and they continue their conversation just like it never happened. What's more, we're told by Yeshua that it never happened. Um, like, we get this scene of, of Pilate walking with Yeshua um, in the epilogue. Like, uh, Ivan Homeless, now restored, now, you know, writing correctly, no longer engaging in poetry, sort of sees this as his vision while he's asleep. Um, so on page 395, we have, Gods, gods, says that man in, in the cloak, Pilate, turning his haughty face to his companion. Such a banal execution. But please, here the face turns from haughty to imploring, tell me it never happened. I implore you, tell me it never happened. Well, of course it never happened, his companion, Yeshua, replies in a hoarse voice. You imagined it. And you can swear it to me, the man in the cloak asks ingratiatingly. I swear it, replies his companion, and his eyes smile for some reason. I need nothing more, the man in the cloak exclaims in a husky voice, and goes ever higher towards the moon, drawing his companion along. Notice, the moon, again, is an important symbol here, and we've talked about how exactly it works as a symbol. And it doesn't seem to jive with what we've said so far about the difference between truth and lies. Like I, I mentioned, you know, Matthew Levi is spinning this story of Yeshua, the, the, the prophet, the, the man God, the, the story we read in the Gospels, and it doesn't line up with reality. And it's hard for us to square, you know, on the one hand, Bulgakov is firmly interested in the truth, keeps condemning people for telling lies. But on the other hand, this lie seems to go forward. But notice how it concludes here. How Yeshua tells Pilate a lie, it never happened, but it becomes true. It's more than true, in a sense. Now, we could just write this off as, as the dream of homeless, who, who doesn't apparently know what's going on. Maybe that's, that's what we're getting at here. But it seems more likely that what Bulgakov is pointing to is an even deeper truth, a truth of the way the world should be. Like, yes, Pilate screwed things up. Pilate, you know, executed Jesus, and that's something irrevocable, something that Woland must judge and punish. But somehow, through the, the order of the universe, through this promise that Woland gives us that everything is going to turn out all right and that the world is built on it, it seems that reality itself is malleable. Like, not malleable in the way that the liars in Soviet Russia are willing to, to sort of distort and, and lie their way to personal profit, but rather the things that are broken in this world, the things that are wrong, the things that are upset, the things that we wish we could have done better, the, the mistakes that we've made, those things aren't permanent. You know, manuscripts don't burn... Bulgakov tells us, and, you know, the truth is easy and simple, easy and pleasant to speak. 
all of these things are true in a sense and aren't true in another. Like, you can destroy a manuscript and it's lost. You can speak lies and end lives. Bad things have consequences in this world. And when you do bad things, you should be punished. And Bulgakov tells us that you will be punished. You know, we see bad people frequently punished. Like, think of Berlioz. Think of how this book functions. The good that Wolin brings to Pilate, to, you know, the Master and Margarita, to all the people who serve goodness on some level, even if they do it imperfectly. Like, even the cowardice that ma the Master shows us and the, the cowardice that Pilate shows us, it is both wrong and condemned and rightfully condemned and punished. But it is also not permanent. Both Pilate and the Master are forgiven, and they're not just forgiven in the sense that, like, somebody shows up and says, dude, you made a mistake, but I forgive you. No, it is made right. The universe cannot abide these mistakes for long. They naturally repair themselves. Pilate is punished, but not forever. The Master is punished, but not forever. And it's important, too, I think, that the Master is the one who fixes Pilate's situation. The Master is the one who is specifically contracted to repair the damage that has been done. And when Yeshua tells Pilate, no, it never happened, it was just a dream, we're led to believe that that is somehow more true than the truth that was being covered up. So it's hard to kind of wrap one's brain around what Bulgakov is actually saying about truth and lies here. But it seems to be that there is, on the one hand, no patience for, for lies, like told for the sake of profit or told for the sake of cowardice or told to get yourself out of trouble. Um, they're, the best thing to do is always to tell the truth, no matter what the consequences, no matter what reputations may be ruined or what lives may be destroyed, tell the truth anyway. But for those of you who do lie, who do envision a world that is different from our own, if that lie is told in good faith, if that lie is not to, to you know, protect yourself or to cover things up or to you know, profit from somebody else's misfortune, like Aloysi Magarovich, um, if your lie serves the greater goodness of the universe, then it will become true. There is no lie in that. Matthew Levi is not lying when he tells us that Yeshua does not die. He makes reality. And Yeshua does not lie when he tells Pilate that he was never executed. No, he makes that true. That truth was always greater than the truth that Pilate lied, than the truth that Pilate failed, than the truth that Pilate was a coward. Remember, Yeshua told us right from the beginning that all men are good. Yeshua's lie there, his inability to see the world through this light of, of, of negativism, of pessimism, his you know, failure to see the reality of the situation becomes the way the world actually is. And if he's right, if it's true that there are no bad men, if Yeshua you know, is correct to say that all men are good, 
And through this process, eventually everybody gets redeemed. Eventually, reality itself will be rewritten where no mistakes were made and no sins were committed and no lies and no injustices. Now, the one exception to this might be Berlioz, of all people. Because remember, like, Wolin told us, Berlioz, he gets out. Like, he says, I deny life after death, and Wolin is like, well, that's that's a, con a hard truth that that's concrete. It's a, you know, well thought out, and therefore that's what you're going to get. Wiped out, annihilated. In the process, Berlioz misses out on the chance of everything being made right. You know, he is damned in a very real sense. Damned in a way that can't be undone. You know, Frieda, she gets out of being damned. Pilate gets out of being damned. In all likelihood, there are many of the souls who were damned, not because they, you know, did evil gleefully, but because they did evil because they had to or were scared. Those people will be punished and turned over, will eventually be saved in this cosmic order, according to what Bulgakov is sort of hinting at here. Berlioz, Berlioz doesn't even give himself the chance. He has no hope and therefore receives no benefit. So think about this. Like, as we depart from this, as we sort of close out this chapter of the book, of this chapter of our lives, this chapter of just everything that's going on in the world, I appreciate so much Bulgakov's optimism, not as this sort of superficial or, or you know, cheap thing, but as something real and potent, something true in a sense that, you know, misery isn't even true enough. I, when I say that, you know, so much of our art today is insubstantial, this is what I mean. Like, Bulgakov saw real horror and depicted it and talked about it very honestly. And then he talks about hope. And it makes it so much more powerful when he does. You know, you look at, like, the new Star Wars movies. They bang out, bang on about hope for forever and never give us any reason to believe in it. It's always just lip service. Like, hope is something that is built on it empty promises and, and comes to, you know, fruition because, because hope. Bulgakov explains how hope works here, why hope is worthwhile, what is good about it. He gives us reason to hope. He gives us a concrete underlying philosophy of the world being good and, you know, people being good. And that all of the evil things that happen in this world are fleeting. Like, even the things that seem to be set in stone that are, you know, unable to be undone, we're told. Like, Wolin tells the master, or like he, you know, says here to Margarita, things sometimes do go back to the way they were and should be. That's the way of things. And the world is built on this for that matter. That's powerful. Like, maybe it's not true. Maybe it doesn't line up with our experience. Maybe it doesn't line up with the metaphysical reality of our world as we know it. But the idea 
and of like we said, the idea is the more powerful thing. The idea sticks. It holds. This is meaningful. You know, we can disagree with it, like Berlioz, but why would we? I mean, if you can come up with something better, that's that's another thing entirely. And again, like this obviously doesn't line up with Christianity for a variety of reasons. So, you know, if you have faith in that, that's, that's another question. And we've talked about a lot of different people who have sort of interpreted this cosmic truth of, of Christianity and religion, of God, of devils, in a variety of different ways. But what I want to stress, like, what I want to leave you with as you go away from this class, as you go away from my lectures, as, you know, we move on to whatever the next phase of our lives is going to be, Know why you believe what you believe. Know what you believe and know why you believe it. Know how this fits, how this decides your actions, how this discerns for you the difference between good and evil, as we've seen from Dante and Moliere and Mozart and Milton and all those other guys whose names start with M. Um, like we've seen with Dostoevsky and with Shaw and with Irving and with most of these writers. Um, as we've seen with Bulgakov. Think about what this means. Don't just, you know, accept the the disconnected ideas that we are sort of like fed or think. Line it up with reality. Don't accept what you're told. Don't accept what you're supposed to believe. Try and build something for yourself. Don't make excuses instead just do something with it uh, figure out how this world works and then once you have done that do what you can to make the world better that's what Bulgakov is aiming for here that what he, that's what he's prescribing you know don't just tolerate the status quo don't just try and get ahead don't just you know step on people as you lie cheat and steal your way to the top Know why you do the things you do. Bump up against reality. Don't, you know, accept some fiction that you're told that is a cheap substitute for what is actually going on around you. That's very much what he's suggesting here, what, what Bulgakov is suggesting, and what I would encourage. Um, As for the history, as for, you know, the journey, the, this business of studying the humanities altogether, notice that, you know, we have changed our understanding of how good and evil work, how religion works, how reality works. So often, so many times over these 500 years of history, um, and obviously we're not done. Like, with every passing year, that's technically another year I should supposedly be covering in my curriculum. And someday, I'm sure, you know, I'll get to the Cold War and we'll, presumably scholars of the future will talk about our time period as though it was, you know, just another century in our, our collective human development. Or at least we can hope, you know, assuming there are people erudite enough to actually study this time period and not just dismiss it as though it was irrelevant or unimportant. Um, and I guess that's as much a lesson here. Like know our place in time know how we got to this point because you know the the sort of 
the, there's that old adage about those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. Well, those who don't know the history of ideas are doomed to have bad ideas, um, doomed to make the same mistakes of many generations past. Um, we live in tricksy times, and I think an important part of why they're so tricksy is because we're not paying attention to where we're going, or where we've been, for that matter. So I hope that you're better informed now. I hope that you can see how ideas fit into reality. How, you know, books and, and writers and thinkers and philosophers and scientists have shaped what we think and what we believe um, and how that has changed the world in dramatic ways. Um, it's not idle, what I'm talking about here. Like, it's not pointless. Um, it can be, especially if you don't bother to do it. Um, and if we return to some state where we don't pay attention to these things, it could be a major problem. Um, but, you know, next time somebody tells you, like, why bother to read these, these old books, I hope that it's a little more obvious why. You know, that... Locke justified an entire revolution and, you know, a bunch of people caught up on on 18th century Enlightenment philosophy tore all of Europe apart in the early 19th century. Um, and then the as a result of these things, people reacted. In the 20th century, World War I shook everybody's faith in, in reality itself, and so we believe to this day that reality is something malleable, something we change, something we control. Know why we believe that. Know what caused us to believe that. Know why our reactions led us to that conviction. Because if you can do that, then maybe you can get a better sense of where we're going, how we're going to react to this crisis, and what we're going to do as a response. How the changes now will affect our ideas going forward. And which of those ideas might actually cause more problems in the end.